The, the way that we're going to do that is the way we did sermons last fall, and that is two sermons in a row, as you might have noticed this morning, for the next couple of months on the same scripture text. A number of you found that really helpful when we did it last fall, so we're going to do it some more. The, the repetition and reinforcement, reinforcement helped you to remember the sermons better and to apply them to your lives. So as we look again at Genesis 15, 7 to, um, to whatever, that passage, uh, I forget, what am I preaching on here? 21. Okay, uh, what is the Bible about? What is the Bible about? Well, one way to, to answer that question is to think about what the DNA of the Bible is. If any of you have a scientific bent, then you know that DNA is that, that double spiral of nucleic acids that runs through every cell of your body and it contains the information which makes you who you are. And there's a DNA which runs through the Bible as well, from beginning to end, making God's word what it is. And it also has two strands. Actually, depending on the theologian you talk to, they might say there's three or four strands, and they might describe those strands in different way. But we're going to go with two strands. And uh, the way that I'm going to describe these two strands is this way. Covenant, that's one strand. And kingdom, that's the second strand. Covenant and kingdom. And by the way, I'm going to be drawing on a book and some other materials by that name this morning and in the coming weeks. Covenant and kingdom, we see these two strands right from the beginning of the Bible and they carry us all the way through to the end. Covenant is about relationship. It's about two becoming one. It's about family and community. It's about God and the people God is creating to be his own people, to be in relationship with him. Covenant. Kingdom, on the other hand, is about responsibility. It's about what God has created us to do on God's behalf, to, to make this world the place that it's meant to be. Kingdom is about purpose. So we have relationship and responsibility. We have people and purpose. We have loving and working. We have covenant and kingdom. Today we're going to look at covenant, as Greg Howe began doing with us last week. And next week and the week after, we'll look at kingdom. So uh, we're going to look at these two strands, these two biblical themes, and the way we're going to do it is by looking at some foundational stories, which are key to the biblical story, which really set these two themes out as central. And the first story that we're going to continue to look at this morning is the story of Abraham and Sarah. It's a story about covenant. The second story beginning next week will be about Joseph and his kingdom influence. So we begin here in Genesis 15. At this point in the story of Abraham, he's still called Abram. God hasn't given him his new name yet. And his wife, Sarah, is still called Sarai. And the Lord appears to Abram, we learn up in verse 1 of chapter 15, and says to Abram, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Now the word shield in Hebrew is, is the same as the word sovereign. And so Abram responds back to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, O Lord who is a shield. Abram is hearing what God is saying, I am your shield, and he understands that the Lord is saying that he will uh, shield Abram as a king shields his subjects. And then Abram also picks up the part about the reward. And 
So he responds to the Lord basically, Oh, sovereign Lord, I've been waiting for years for you to make good on your promise. But what can you give me as a reward since I'm an old man and, and I don't have any kids yet as, any, as heirs? And so this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, who's a servant in my household, is going to inherit everything you've given me. Now, what's going on here is the back and forth of Middle Eastern bargaining. The Lord comes to Abram, and Abram has previously heard from God that he will have many, many children. And these children will shape and will influence and will bless all other cultures. But Abram has no children. And so he's wondering how all that's going to happen. So Abram, it seems, is seeing whether God is open to negotiation here. And in Abram's culture, the ideal outcome of a negotiation is for the result to be sealed in a covenant between the negotiating parties. Because when there's a covenant, it means whatever has been agreed to is secure and it's permanent. And in a covenant, there's a, really, a very real sense in which the two people making the covenant become one. They give up their independent identities and, and their new identities are tied with one another. And in that culture, this joining and this connecting by making a covenant is symbolized in the death of a substitute which is killed as part of the covenant ceremony, as we'll see. And then, it's, and then after that, there is the taking up of, of a new life which is bound up in the relationship of the two parties involved in the covenant with their covenant partner um, as they now share a new identity together forever. They're no longer just individuals. They now share a common bond. They belong to one another. Their fates are connected. An attack on one is now an attack on the other. A need experienced by one is now the responsibility of the other. There's a sense in which what belongs to one is now available to the other. Now, covenants aren't something that we're too familiar with anymore. Because covenants require commitment and they require giving up some of our individuality in order to identify and be responsible for another. And so probably the last vestige of covenant making in our society is marriage. And to be honest, we're not doing so hot at that one. But, but in the wedding ceremony, we see a covenant being enacted between two parties. The bride and the groom's independent identities are to some extent offered up in order to create a new common identity. Traditionally, the bride and groom now share a name. They share family. They share a home. They share a bank account. And this is the sort of thing that Abram is looking for in relation to God in our story. God has spoken. The, the, the promise has been given. But, but it hasn't been ratified in a covenant. It hasn't been sealed in blood. So Abram's longing for certainty and for commitment from God. And, and so they talk, and, and then God says the words that Abram's longing to hear, bring me a heifer. Now, that doesn't mean much to you, right, or to me, <laughs> but it meant everything to Abram. And he's off. He, he grabs a heifer. He grabs all the other animals that God's identified, and he slaughters them in the field. He cuts them open from nose to tail, and he puts out, <clears throat> out their pieces in the field, and there's blood, and it's, it's full of gore. 
and Abram's fully aware of what it means to sacrifice these animals, and he's up to his elbows in it. It means that those making the covenant are saying to one another, may it happen to me what's happening to these animals if I fail to keep this covenant. And then Abram waits. And as he waits, he he drives off the vultures who are seeking the carrion. And some interpreters think these vultures symbolize Egypt who will swoop into the story later of Abraham's descendants and try to destroy God's promises to them. And and then as darkness falls, Abram is overwhelmed with fatigue because it's an incredibly hard job slaughtering and butchering that many animals. And, And as the darkness falls, Abram falls into a deep sleep. And in the darkness and in that moment, the Lord appears. And and God appears in the form of a smoking fire pot. They didn't have matches or lighters back then. And and so the fire pot was where you kept the leftover coals from the last fire so that you'd have them to make the next one. And and fire, it's it's a symbol of of God's presence. But but God's presence isn't just a few smoldering coals. It's, It's living and it's active. And maybe that's why alongside the fire pot, there's a blazing torch as well. I don't know. And the, so the blazing torch and the smoking fire pot are, are standing there and then they move and they pass between the pieces of the animals. And God says through that action that forever God will be one with Abram. That's not obvious to us, but in Abram's culture, it was plain as day. Abram would have clearly understood that, that what was going on here was that there were two leaders. There was a great leader, And there was a lesser leader. God, of course, is the great leader, and Abram is the lesser leader. And the great leader is conferring by grace, as a gift, the invitation for the lesser leader to come into relationship with him. To enter into his protection and into his provision. To be his shield, to be his great reward. This is is the greater leader conferring on the lesser leader a relationship. It's, it's the stronger conferring on the weaker the right to relationship. So, so covenant is and always has been about grace. It's a gift. It's always required the initiative of the greater one. It, it's always required the initiative of the stronger one. And God, the stronger one, confers grace upon the weak Abram And he gives them the right to a relationship. But there's more than that. It's not the relationship that a slave would have with his master. Or or that an employee would have with a boss. Or even which business associates or political allies would share. No, the best way to describe this kind of relationship is with family language. When kings would make these kinds of covenants with one another in Old Testament times. The greater king would say to the lesser king... Now I'm your father, and you are my son. And if you know history, you know that often the the giving of a daughter as a bride would often be involved to seal a covenant, and so it really did become family. They become one family. And God confers on Abram here this astonishing gift, which, which is that Abram is now one family with God. And can meet God eye to eye as a family member. Of course, God remains the greater and the stronger. 
But like any child can do with their parent, Abram now has the right to be bold and to come to God with what's on his mind and with what he needs. Isn't that amazing? That God, the king of the universe, would actually invite us little humans into that kind of relationship. It's astounding. Now, what's the symbol of this covenant? Well, the symbol is death. The symbol is death. It's represented in the death of these animals. That that I've given up my identity, and I've walked through the corridor of, of blood, and have gone through to the other side where my covenant partner is waiting for me. And his identity, his people, and all that he is now become mine, and I become tied to them forever. And as God passes between the pieces, God chooses to give up some of his freedom in a sense. Because God has now restricted his options, options by choosing to be faithful to Abram and Abraham's people after him. God didn't have to do that. But God chose freely to do it. And Abram, of course, he's got a great deal. And, and, and here's the even greater thing that I've already alluded to about Death being the symbol of this covenant. The sacrificial animals who are lying there all bloody, cut in half, represent the curse, the consequences of breaking the covenant. And walking between the pieces, the, the covenant party was, was swearing an oath, saying, may it happen to me what has happened to these animals if I don't remain faithful to this covenant. And who goes between the pieces? As Greg pointed out last Sunday, God does. God says, if I do not keep this covenant, may I be destroyed. May my very life be on the line to seal this covenant as binding and as dependable. I wonder whether Abram afterwards ever sat by the the campfire and wondered what this could possibly mean for God. How could the God of the universe even possibly give up his life for me? How could that be? How could he be so committed to me that he says he's prepared to die for me? Well, then a little later in the story, God deepens the covenant even further over in chapter 17. You can turn there if you have your Bibles open. Verse 5 of chapter 17. God says, first of all, I'm going to take one of the letters out of my name and I'm going to give it to you. In Hebrew, God's name had four consonants. Y, H, W-H. And some interpreters have pointed out that, that God gives Abram and Sarai each one of his H's. Abram becomes Abraham, and Sarai becomes Sarah. Abram becomes Abraham, and now he's, his name no longer means exalted father, which is what Abram meant, but rather father of many nations. And Sarai becomes Sarah. Her name in both cases means princess. That doesn't change. But the meaning changes because in verse 10, God says she will become the mother of nations and kings of peoples will come from her. I wonder if Abram or Abraham and Sarah now ever wondered how God's name would change as a result of the covenant. Names, remember, in biblical culture have meaning. They represent the the person's character. And at this point in the biblical story, Abraham and Sarah are, are still getting to know God. They, they know God's made them promises to give them descendants, to give them a land, to, to bless the world through them. They've learned that God has, has promised to be their shield, their, their sovereign, and their reward. 
But, but what else will God prove to be like? How will God's name change? Well, in time, Abraham's descendants will, will come to realize that God's name is also the Lord saves, which if you translate that, is Jesus. God will also prove to be a savior to his covenant people, right? Because here's the, the amazing thing about all this for us. And that is that the covenant make, God makes with Abraham and Sarah isn't just for Abraham and Sarah. It's for their descendants after them as well. What does the New Testament tell us? That through Jesus Christ, the Savior, we are now Abraham's descendants. Galatians 3, 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Children of the covenant family. In other words, if we put our faith in Jesus, the Savior, we are a part of the covenant too. The covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants pertains to us also. So what does this mean for us? Well, if we look a little further in in Abraham's story, we see how Abraham begins to relate to God differently now that they share a covenant relationship. So if we go a little further to the next chapter, to chapter 18, God shows up at Abraham and Sarah's tent with two angels and pays them a visit. And God tells them about the baby who is going to be born to Abraham and Sarah, even though they're old. And then Abraham goes for a walk with the visitors, and, and off in a distance is, are, are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord says in verse 17 of chapter 18, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? After all, he's my covenant partner now. I, I've promised to make him into a mighty nation and through him to bless the whole world. And so God says to Abraham, I'm going to go down and investigate what's going on in wicked Sodom and Gomorrah and deal with it accordingly. And what does Abraham do? Abraham, who's now God's covenant partner, begins bargaining with God. God, what if there were 50 righteous people down there in Sodom and Gomorrah? Would you sweep away the good with the bad? And God says, no, if I find 50, I will spare the city. And then what does Abraham do next? He starts bargaining God down. What if there are 45? 40? 30? 20. God, what if there are 10? Can you imagine the chutzpah (laughs) to bargain like this with God? Do you talk to God this way? But Abraham knows that he can. Do you know why? Because he's now God's covenant partner. And so God listens. God engages with him. Well, guess what? We're in covenant with God too if our faith is in Jesus Christ. And and so why don't we talk to God like that? Because it's not only okay, but God seems to expect it from his children. Think of the parable that Jesus tells about the persistent widow when he's teaching us how to pray. In the parable, Jesus encourages us to pray to God like the widow who goes to the judge and wears him down with her petitions. (laughs) We can ask God about how he handles things. We can ask God what he's doing and we can tell God, frankly, what we don't understand. Because we're in covenant with God and and as a result of that new relationship, that's an entirely appropriate response now. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become arrogant or presumptuous. 
Abraham certainly wasn't. He, he sort of said, you know, God, I, I'm, trying, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm just trying to understand here who you are. But, but Abraham is a covenant partner who recognizes that the other covenant partner has conferred upon him a covenant of oneness, even though God is the greater one. And so we can speak to God like Abraham does. And what we begin to discover as we do is that we gain greater confidence to ask for the resources we need to conduct the business God has given us to do. And the reason we can ask is that we bear God's name. We share God's identity. We're part of God's family. We're in relationship now. All right, as we continue to look back at chapter 17 now, we see one more thing about being in covenant. Up in verse 1 of chapter 17, we read, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. In other words, allow your new covenant identity to be reflected in your behavior, Abram. Now, it's striking to me that, that Abram is 99 years old now, and only now is God getting around to telling him to obey him. Do you know what that tells me? That, that you can't put behavior before identity. That identity comes first. That the gift of covenant comes first. And then behavior follows as a result of who you now are. You can't prove to God that, that you're his child by doing good things. You do good things because you're his child. You do good things because they reflect the identity of the one who's your father. I don't tell my kids, kids, I, I want you to obey me. And if you do a really good job, I'll invite you to be a part of this family. No, they're already part of my family, right? They received that as a gift. They did nothing to earn it. And so now Ann and I, now that they're part of our family, we try to teach them how a Wiedenheft is supposed to live and is supposed to act. And so, for example, when I hear from, from another Boy Scout dad what a great kid Josiah is and how he's so good with the younger scouts and he's so helpful and he's so cooperative and they're so happy to have him part of the troop, I tell Josiah I'm proud of him because he's living out his identity. And, and that's what happens when we're in covenant with God. When God's our parent and, and we're his child, we begin to see with our father's eyes. We begin to reveal our father's face. We, we begin to do things as if they were, or as if it were the very hands of the father doing them. We walk the way he walks. We, we talk the way he talks. Isn't that what Jesus showed us? He said, I only do what I see my father doing. Jesus knew his identity and he behaved accordingly. And so the Lord comes to Abraham and says, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Because remember, covenants go both ways. Abraham receives the blessings and the resources that his covenant partner has. And it also means God has accesses to the re access to the resources that his covenant partner has, Abraham. And so when we get to chapter 22, 
that, that amazing, challenging, scandalous, a hope-filled story. Isaac has now been born. Abraham and Sarah have a son, finally. The, the promised child whom God has provided miraculously. And Abraham, by this point, has received bounty from God, honor, a, a great name. God has treated him generously and caused him to prosper. God has protected him. And Isaac is going to inherit it all. Um, and uh, now God says, Abraham, covenant partner, I want what you have too. I want the boy. Because for Abraham, the boy represented everything. Isaac is everything Abraham really has. It's his whole life. But Abraham doesn't really protest in the story, really. Because he knows how covenants work. You have access to what your covenant partner has, and, and they have access to what you have. And, and God isn't shy to ask for it. In a sense, God says, Abraham, you, you already have everything of mine, and now I want everything of yours. Which is the same thing in a sense that Jesus says to us now, isn't it? Take up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life for me. I'm giving you everything I have, a new name, a new membership in my family, a new life in my kingdom, everything else you need as well. Now you give me your old life. Lay it down. And as you lay down your old life and I, I continue to give you a new life, the life I give you will be so powerful that you will be able to do greater things than I did, Jesus says. John 15, 16, ask for whatever you will in my name and it will be given to you. That's how covenants work. We're in covenant. What God has is available to you when you make yourself available to God. God says, we're one in this. W will you give me your life? I want it. Die to your old life. And I will give you a new life with me in covenant together. So as we close, question. What do you need from God? Or what is God asking for you? If you're in covenant with God, he has the right to ask. And you have the right to ask. And to expect to receive it. If it's asked in his name and according to his well, will, if your heart is with him. And another question, are you in a covenant relationship with God? The invitation um, is there. God has invited you into a covenant relationship with him. The invitation was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. On the cross, Jesus not only symbolized the, the curse of the covenant, the, the consequences of breaking the covenant, but Jesus actually took that curse, took that consequence on himself. The penalty for breaking the covenant has already been paid, which makes the covenant completely secure. How do you enter into the covenant? Well, as we saw earlier in Galatians 3, 7, it's by putting our faith in Jesus. And the covenant ceremony that, that um, 
that uh, God has given us um, to solidify that faith, to express that faith, is, is called baptism. Um, every June as a church, we have a picnic, and we traditionally do baptisms at that picnic. That's a, a chance to, to engage in that covenant ceremony, to put your faith into practice, and to enter into covenant with God. Um, maybe you were already baptized as a baby, and maybe it was just a tradition, or it didn't mean anything to you at the time, or <laughs> as you grew older, but now it does mean something to you. Um, I'd be happy to talk to you about how to reconfirm that faith, that baptism which happened so long ago, so that it can be meaningful, and it can be a living faith which enters you into covenant with God now. So those are some different ways we may want to respond. Let's pray. God, it just astounds me that you, the creator of all, the Lord of the universe, would stoop down to tie yourself by covenant to a human being like Abram and Sarai. And all the more that as that covenant unfolded down through centuries and millennia, you have expanded it to throw open your arms wide and invite us into that covenant as well. And not only that, but you were so serious, so committed to this covenant relationship that you paid the price on the cross for the penalty of breaking the covenant so that we could all come freely into it. I pray that you'd be speaking to each of our hearts Some of us are already in covenant with you and we need to be reminded of what that means. Others of us have not yet entered into covenant with you and you're inviting us to do so. I pray that our hearts would be open to respond however you want each of us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.